morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. What a fantastic time of worship. Those songs that we've just sung couldn't have been any more spot on for what the Lord's laid on my heart to share this morning. If after I've spoken, if you were to read through those songs, you'd think we'd actually spoken to each other and planned it. But uh, you had no idea what I'm speaking about this morning. So it's amazing how God moves. And that's the kind of God we have. We have a God who's in control. We have a God of order, a God who loves us, a God who wants to lead us on. And what fantastic news that we've got to the uh, planning permission stage with our building. God is moving us on. And, um, you know, I don't know at which point you will get excited. It might be when it's all completed. But I get excited at every stage because every stage proves God's faithfulness to us. And uh, we're going to see that new building. So praise God that that's where we're at. I just want to say a couple of other things as well before I start this morning. Um, Bob mentioned this morning that next week we're going to have a collection. And he said, I'll tell you this guy's name next week, his surname, Simon somebody. And that's because his, his surname is notoriously difficult to pronounce when you see it spelt. But his name is Simon Gilbo. And Simon Gilbo is the founder of the Great Lakes Outreach in Burundi. And he does a tremendous work out there. As Bob mentioned, Burundi is one of the poorest places on the planet. And it's constantly going through civil war. And Simon and his family and other workers, Christian workers, have been out there for a long time. There's been a few times where they've needed to flee the country because of what was happening there. But in the main, Simon in particular has stayed through all that stuff. And there's a great need out there, but people are coming to know the Lord Jesus through that work. So next week I'll have a little video clip, I'll show you about that, but that's what we're going to be collecting for next week. I just want to bring something to your attention as well this morning that I just want to pray for. Um, Carol Ramsden, you know Carol, um, sent a message yesterday for prayer because her daughter-in-law, Kirsty, um, you may have seen this in the news, there was a, a, an old gentleman um, in a hit and run accident um, in Bradford. Um, when was it, Carol, was it? Yesterday, Friday, on Friday, and it was Kirsty's um, granddad. And um, so we want to pray for the family, pray for Kirsty. And, um, you know, these things are just such a shock out there. You know, you read these things and you hear these things happening and you always think it's someone else. Um, but it's, on this occasion, it's someone we know and we want to pray for. So I'm just going to pray for Kirsty and her family. Father, we just want to thank you that, Lord, nothing takes you by surprise. And, Lord, though we're shocked by the things that happen in this world and happen to our loved ones, Lord, you are Lord of all. And I just want to pray for Kirsty and her family and Carol and her family right now, that even in this tragic situation, you will present yourself. And for Kirsty, she will just seek you out of this uh, disaster, Lord, this tragedy in her family. And I pray, Father, that you'll comfort them. They may not know you. They may not know that's where the comfort's coming from. But we pray you'll comfort them in their grief, that you'll help them in their hurt. And more than that, Lord, you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we can only make sense of this life and all that happens when we know you. Father, I pray that they'd come to know you. So bless Kirsty, bless Carol as she seeks to minister into that situation. Help us to keep that family in prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a, 
an interesting week for, for us at home. We, we've got rid of all the females in our family this week. So Kath's in Australia for three weeks. So that's pretty good. She can't interfere with anything I'm doing in the house or, or what I'm watching on TV. Um, Beth is uh, at university now. She's gone to Lancaster. So it's just me, Josh and Joel. So it's football and pizza every night. You need to, you need to pray for us. It's hard. You know, it's tough. But uh, it's, it's a good thing. So a particular prayer for Beth uh, at university. She's gone on her first church search this morning to uh, the go around different churches. And uh, bless her, you know, God is really faithful. You know, I took Beth to university last Sunday. Um, Sunday evening, she was a bit panicky. She was texting me and there was a party somewhere at nine o'clock that everybody was going to on the Sunday night, a nightclub somewhere, and she didn't really want to go. And she didn't go, but then she felt bad because she didn't go. She was saying, everybody will think I'm weird or a freak or something. And so they all go to this thing, and you know, she says, I just need some friend quickly and everything. So we really prayed for her. And the next day she got up, and she, for the first time, really met the people that she's sharing accommodation with. It's like six separate rooms on this corridor. And there's another girl there who's a Christian, and she also hid in her room that night and didn't go. So they both sat in their room praying, Lord, send me someone, send me someone. And, uh, and since then, she's met a number of, of Christians and see you and stuff like that. She's also met two Mormons. So uh, I've told Beth that's a special project for this year uh, with a bit of support from her dad. But anyway, yes, yeah, so praise God, praise God. God is good. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. It's Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, beginning at verse 20. The Apostle Paul said this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all, on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let me just pray before we look at what Paul's saying there. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you it's your word that sets us free. Thank you, Lord, that as we come to your word this morning, we want to hear from you. 
We pray, Father, that uh, you will use me this morning and the things I've prepared to speak into people's hearts and lives and minds, Lord. And I pray, Father, that your will will be done. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. We pray, Lord, that uh, you will just come and comfort us and challenge us and encourage us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know how much you understood of what I just read there. You know, Paul's got a way with words, hasn't he? A very difficult way with words. You read it and you think, man, I need to read that again. I have no idea what I just read. And, and that's Paul for you. And I'm hoping to just unpack some of the things that he's saying there. Um, in his Bible, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he famously called this passage the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. And he said that with good reason. Luther recognized in these verses that I've just read that Paul is talking about something very profound, something that just doesn't affect Paul or those he's writing to in Rome, but to humanity itself. This message this morning and what Paul is saying there is for every person that's ever lived. It's for all of us this morning. You know, sometimes we can look at Scripture and read the Scripture and think, well, that was something to do with them. But it's not. It's something to do with us. So we need to have ears to hear what Paul is saying this morning because it's about us as well. I don't know about you, but I, I'm just so easily distracted. Are you? I don't know if you're so easily distracted. It, it's so easy to be distracted in these days, especially if you're a young person like me. With all the, all the gadgets you can have, you can be watching TV, you can be on your iPad and then your phone makes a noise and you, you're just so easily distracted with things. And often when I'm looking for things, something will catch my attention and I'm off somewhere else all of a sudden. And that happened to me this week. You know, sometimes um, as you're searching on Google, there'll be something else comes up and you think, oh, that sounds interesting. And I came across one of those things and it, this, this article said, some amazing facts about your body. Well, that had nothing to do with what I was searching for, but I thought, that sounds interesting, so I was off over there somewhere. But I just sort of want to share with you just some amazing facts about your body this morning. You, you might know this already. Apparently, for every pound of fat gained, you add seven miles of new blood vessels. Why are you not astonished by that? It's like, you already know that? Every pound of fat gained, you add seven miles of new blood vessels. Man, yeah, thank you, James. Yeah, woo. Yeah. A few of us have got a number of blood vessels running around us. Here's a second thing. This was interesting as well. Apparently, you are taller in the morning than in the evening. Did you know that? You're taller. That's good news for some of you smaller people. You know, I, I, I sort of copied down what it said about this. It said, when you crawl out of the sack in the morning... You are at your tallest. On average, you are approximately one half inch taller when you wake in the morning, thanks to the excess fluid between your spinal discs. Uh, while you are sleeping, these fluids, fluids replenish. During the day, your body has to deal with the stress of standing, so the discs become compressed and the fluid seeps out. This results in you losing a small amount of extra height. Wow, how about that? Taller in the morning than in the evening. Another one. Your body produces enough heat in only 30 minutes to boil a half gallon of water. 
It's fascinating stuff, isn't it? I don't know if any of this is true. But it, but it was on Wikipedia, so it must be, it must be true. I don't, but anyway, number four. By the age of 18, your brain stops growing. After that, you lose more than 1,000 brain cells per day. After 18, your brain stops growing. That explains a lot, doesn't it? That's, yeah. I think for some people, it stops growing at a quicker rate, but that's another story. All these things are, are, are really fascinating. Here's a fact that we all know about our body. One day, our body will stop working. It'll give up and we'll die. That's something else we know to be true. One in every one person dies. That's quite a sobering statistic. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it says, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So what the Bible says is, when your body eventually packs up, you will go, stand before God, and be judged. I want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine you, your body packs up, you die, you stood before God, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? What will your answer be? I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about what would your answer be to that question? Why should I let you into heaven? If I was to ask that question to the man on the street, the answer I would probably get is something like this. I think God should let me into heaven because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And then when I ask him, what ways are you a good person? They'll begin to unpack those things. Well, you know, I've, I've never murdered anybody. Uh, you know, I've never robbed a bank. I, I tried to help people. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I, I ran a 10K for, for a cancer charity. You know, I, I, I help my family best I can. You know, I'll do all these things I can. In fact, you know, the more I think about it, the more of a good person I actually am. I'm better than most people. So if God asks me, why should, I get into he- why should he allow me into heaven? It would be because I'm a good person. What about a religious person? If you asked a religious person, they say something like this, well, it's because I, I pray five times a day. Because you know, I stand out in the, t- stand out in the town centre and, and I give out magazines or tracts. Because I help at a soup kitchen. Because I go to church on a Sunday, etc., 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 what would your answer be if God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? How does a person get into heaven? I want you to imagine this morning that someone just in the middle of the church, somewhere there, maybe where Jenny sat. It could be Jenny for this illustration. She's looking down, pretending I'm not talking about her. But imagine it's Jenny. Jenny suddenly jumps up and she says, I've got a life jacket. Who wants this life jacket? You're going to look at Jenny gone out. You're going to think, what is she on about? Why, what's she got a life jacket for? None of us would sort of go flying towards her to claim that life jacket, I would assume, because we wouldn't see a need for it. But imagine we were all on a ship, and the ship was sinking, and Jenny jumps up and says, I've got a spare life jacket. How many of us would go for that life jacket? We would all pile upon Jenny, trying to get that life jacket. You see, the life jacket... In that little story, it only makes sense when you give it a context in which it makes sense to have that. And likewise, people don't see the need for Jesus 
until they become aware of a context, until they become aware of the perilous danger that they are in. Just as people need a context to see the need for a life jacket, so people need a context to see the need for Jesus. That's often why, you know, when we try and share Jesus with people and we talk about Jesus, they're like, I don't need him. Why do I need him? There's no context for them to understand their need of a saviour. Now, what the Apostle Paul does here in writing this letter to the Romans, he's primarily showing his readers that salvation comes in one way and one way only, and that is through Jesus Christ. And from Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, Paul offers a context to show why people need Jesus. And the picture that Paul paints is very bleak. He says in chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Romans 1.28-32, he says this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do this do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, you know, Paul tries to fit everything he can possibly think of in there to get every single person he's speaking to. And you see how he's contrasting here with the unrighteousness of human beings with the righteousness of God. In chapter 2, Paul argues that both the Jew and the Gentile stand to be punished by a holy God. Because everyone, all people have sinned and have gone their own way and stand in opposition towards God. And in chapter 3, 9 to 12, he says, For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They've become together, sorry, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And Paul is painting this picture. He's saying, guys, it's bad news He's giving them a context. It's bad news. We're all sinners. We're all unrighteous. We're all in in opposition to God and his ways. We're all estranged from God. We're all guilty before a holy God. And we're all deserving punishment. Now I believe, you know, the Apostle Paul is not saying all this to make his hearers feel bad. But rather to make them feel desperate. Not to make them feel bad but to make them feel desperate. The first song we sung, well, one of the songs we sung, in this time of desperation. People need to be desperate for God. They need to know how, what a desperate situation they're in in order to understand they need 
salvation. They need Jesus. Sometimes a person needs to be in a desperate situation to see the need and before they will seek help. So often when we tell people about Jesus, if we're just throwing Jesus out there, you need Jesus, you need to be saved, and there's no context for that, they're not going to understand why they need him. There needs to be a context. And the Bible's very clear. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone is unrighteous. There's none that do good. When Paul told his hearers back then, what he told his hearers back then is just applicable to each one of us today and to the world around us. Are we aware of the desperate need we're in? As a person on a sinking ship puts on a life jacket to be saved, have you and I put on Jesus? To put on Jesus. See, this is the illustration as well I've heard before of the life jacket thing. Is that, you know, you've got to put a life jacket on. If there's a life jacket and you need it to save your life, there's no point in just carrying it around with you, saying, I believe in that life jacket. Just leave it on the table, but I believe in it. No, you need to put that life jacket on in order for it to save you. It's the same with Jesus. You don't just say, I believe in him, but you know, it doesn't really affect my life in any way. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't re- I don't really need him, but you know, I sort of believe in him. No, you need to put him on, the Bible says. We need him to be saved. Paul brings his hearers to the point of despair, but then he delivers the answer. In verse 20, he sums up, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What what is Paul saying here? He's saying to all those who believe that they cannot be made right with God through their own effort and goodness. You can't be made right with God through your own efforts and goodness. There's nothing that you and I can do that will make us right with God. Now remember where the Apostle Paul's coming from. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisaical Jew. You know, he followed the law to the letter. He kept everything. He would have been sort of just so overboard with all this stuff, trying to please God, trying to earn his way to God. And yet he comes to know Jesus on that Damascus road, and he sees all his past and all these laws he was trying to keep as refuse. Rubbish. Just a waste of time compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's trying to tell people, you're trying to do all these things and they're no good. They're a waste of time in terms of helping you come righteously before God. So if your answer to to God's question, why should I let you into heaven, is because I do good things or I'm a good person then I'm afraid, according to Paul, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. You hear people say this, don't you? You know, I, I, I do pray all the time. I go to church, I help in Sunday school. I raise money. I, I serve poor people. You know, I help people cross the road. I, they try and justify themselves as being good when the Bible says you're not good. In fact, you're bad. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't do good things. We're capable of doing good things. But in terms of reaching God and getting to heaven, all our righteousness is as filthy rags, it says in Isaiah. We we can't get there through our own energy and from our own steam. 
You need to know that none of these things will get you into heaven. Jesus said this to those who thought they were good enough to get into heaven. This is Luke 18, 9 to 14. This is what Jesus said. He said, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And then the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to, to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus was making it really clear to these proud, boastful, religious people that were stood before him. He's saying, you do all this stuff and you boast about it, but that means nothing to God. But here's a guy who's got nothing to offer, doesn't do all that religious stuff, but he humbled himself and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, and he will be made right before God rather than you. And this is what Paul's saying. In like manner, he's saying to his religious hearers, keeping the law, trying to work your way to heaven, will not cut it. It will not work. It matters not that you pray in the temple. It matters not that you wear religious garments. It matters not that you tithe. It matters not that you're circumcised. Why? Because God has ordained one way that will make us right before him. God has ordained one way that will get us into heaven. And every other way is doomed to fail. You know, I think part of our fallen nature, because we are fallen natures, we're all sinners as the Bible tells us, there's something within us that sort of brings pride into our life. We see ourselves better than we really are. We think we can justify ourselves before God and before others. We need to humble ourselves before a holy God. Last, um, last week was such a blessing to have the Korean party with us. I got involved in lots of the ministries here at the church. And um, we had an interesting time um, when we, went, we took them to a mosque a week ago on a Saturday morning. Just a local mosque up on, uh, off Green Lane, Lum Lane there. And uh, we had a, a fascinating time listening to these guys. And you know, Korean people, uh, Earnhardt will understand what I'm saying here. Uh, Korean people, you know, they're not as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Subtle, that's a good word. They're not as subtle as us. You know, we went into the mosque and um, these, these Muslim guys are talking to us and, and sharing stuff with us. And, you know, where we'd have been a little bit more subtle about the questions we'd have asked on their turf, the Koreans were straight in there. And uh, what was interesting is they only spoke in Korean, so Earnhardt had to translate, bless her. <laughs> so we had no idea what, what these Koreans were saying, but we were just looking at Earnhardt's face and I thought, oh man, this is going to be a beauty of a question. This is like, you know, they're like, so what about ISIS then? You know, we're in the mosque. And um, so, but we, we had an interesting time. I'll tell you what also was, was fantastic as well is when we finished in the mosque, we came out and um, we borrowed Church on the Way minibus. Have you seen their minibuses? You know, it's got Jesus, Lord, Saviour, Emmanuel, all this stuff. Phil Wells had parked it right in the car park, right outside the mosque. 
So these Muslim guys come out and they're hit with this minibus with all this stuff on it. It's really fantastic. But what was interesting about that meeting, and meetings I'd had early in that week as well with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, is that all these guys say the same thing. They all say the same thing. They all say, we've got to work to please God. We've got to work. We've got to earn our way to God. We, we've got to pray five times a day. We, we've got to visit Mecca. We've got to learn the Quran in Arabic, even though we don't understand it. You know, we, we have to give our um, booklets and tracts in the town center. We, you have to go knock on people's doors and, and convince them that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. We, we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to. And the moment you say, you don't have to do any of that stuff, they're like, oh, so it's, you just sit back and just believe. No, that's not what we're saying. But none of this stuff earns a person's entry into heaven. Friends, if you are trusting in yourself this morning in any way, shape, or form, if you think you're just good enough to get in without Jesus, the door's going to be locked to you. You're, you're not going to get in there. And what are all these people doing who say that sort of stuff? Well, they're making God a liar. In Romans 3 and verse 4, Paul says, Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. This is what Charles Spurgeon said on let God be true and every man a liar. Spurgeon said this, It is a strange, strong expression, but it is none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like himself, is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than that of the universal opinion of men. How relevant is that still for us today? Let God be true and every man a liar. What God says is true. If God says there's one way to heaven, there's one way to heaven. If he says it's through Jesus, it's through Jesus. Let's not argue with God. Again, if God asks you the question, why should I let you into heaven? And you believe it's because you're a good person or the things you do. You're not going to get in and you do not know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Between verse 20 of Romans 3 and verse 21, there's a great gulf Paul speaks about that people cannot be saved through the law. But then he, he moves from that. We're sinful, but God is holy. But then he's talking about how we can bridge the gap. How then can we reach God? He moves from the bad news, that context of bad news, to the good news. Here's the answer. Here's the antidote to all I've just say, told you, Paul's saying. And Paul is going to tell his hearers that which they cannot do, God is able to do. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Just that little phrase there, but now. But now. You thought it was this way, and this is how you did it, but now. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God. He's, he spent the best part of three chapters talking about the unrighteousness of, of people. 
But now he talks about the righteousness of God. He says revealed. In, in some translations, translations, it uses the word disclosed. So it means the same thing. Paul uses it 22 times, often in connection with the coming of Christ as the definitive revelation of God's plan. It's all about Jesus. Paul says this was being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's Old Testament. What he's saying is, all I'm telling you now about the righteousness of God and the way of salvation was what the law and the prophets were saying as well. It's all there. You know, it's all about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. It, it was there, but now it's been disclosed to you. It's been revealed to you. It's God's plan all along. So we may ask a question then, what was the point of the law and the commandments? If Paul's saying they cannot save you, what was the point of those? Why did God give those laws? Give you an illustration of perhaps, you know, you're driving on the motorway and you know the speed limit is 70 mile an hour. So because we're Christians, you're doing 69 and the 70 mile an hour because you never speed, of course, as a Christian. And, um, and suddenly you see a sign that says 20 mile an hour. So what you slam your brakes on, you slow down, and you're driving at 20 miles an hour for a mile, for two miles, for five miles, 20 miles an hour. You see no workers in the road. You see no accident. The weather conditions are perfect for driving. There is nothing at all there to give you any clue as to why for the last five miles you've had to drive at 20 miles an hour. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Get off the M62. <laughs> Notice I didn't mention M62, but Adam knows that's where it all happens. Would you, would you suddenly take the law into your own hands and maybe think, oh, forget this, I'm off. As you see other people whizzing by you as well. I don't know what you do. See, again, it's hard to obey a law, isn't it, when you don't understand what it's there for. And, and we're like that, really. You know, that's, that's part of our nature as well. We, we will break laws if we don't understand them. We'll break laws even if we do understand them, some people. But we don't understand them. You see, the law that God gave was never intended to be put there and people to follow so that they might be saved by it. It, it was never meant to do that. In fact, the law was given not as a means of salvation, but rather, as Paul says in Galatians 3.24, that it was a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So you see this law, and you know, I can't keep it. I can't keep it. I can't keep it. It's me and Andrea, where's Andrea gone? Andrea, we, me and Andrea had a, a few weeks at her house with some young Mormon lads, and they keep saying, they know they can't keep the law. They've got to keep the law to get to God, but they can't keep the law. And they keep saying, well, that's what repentance is for. We've got to keep repenting. But you can't keep the law. You can't do it. You think you're going to be saved by keeping the law, but you can't do it. Oh, but we keep trying. We're doing our best. No, your best will never be good enough. The law is there to show us that we're sinners. The law was put in place to show how much we need saving. And it's a tutor, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified, made right with God, not by our own efforts, not by a keeping of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul goes on, he says, for there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law shows that each one of us are sinners. 
Now let me just sort of bash through this because it's a really difficult section, so I'll, I'll go through it quite quickly. Verses 24 and 25. The Apostle Paul says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Now here Paul uses some big long words that I had to look up. Um, words like justified, redemption and propitiation. So I'm just going to quickly explain what Paul is saying there. When he uses the word justified, there's the image there of like being in a courtroom. So you're in a courtroom. So say we're in the courtroom of God. And God is saying, did you keep all my commandments? Did you keep all my laws? If we're honest, we're going to say, no, I didn't. So he therefore says, well, therefore you're guilty. You're not going to heaven because you've not met the standard. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to send you to hell. It's a courtroom situation. But the idea is, in Paul's mind here, it's a legal declaration of us being made right with God because someone comes into the courtroom and he takes our place. He takes the punishment that we deserve so that we no longer are punished as we, are, as we ought to be and go to hell. No, Jesus comes along, takes our place, and we go to heaven because of Jesus To be justified means to be made right, declared not guilty before God. It's nothing to do with what we've done or or who we are. It's something that's given freely, Paul says. Someone has taken our place. Someone has taken our punishment so that we're set free. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to get it right. If he was waiting for us to get it right, then he's never going to send Jesus. He's not going to come. No, it's while we were getting it wrong and badly wrong and so wrong and can't reach God that he sends Jesus. So we are justified, Paul says, set free by God's grace. But there's a problem in that. God can't just pretend sin isn't there. That wouldn't be right. That would go against his nature, his character, his holiness. So sin has to be dealt with and sin bears a price. And that's why Paul says there's a need for redemption. Another word he uses. And the idea of redemption is buying back or paying the price. Paul was most most, uh, usually thinking about the image of of a slave perhaps. There had been a lot of Roman slaves in those days. So this idea of bringing someone or buying someone out of slavery. Slaves were bound and kept by their captors. They were at the behest of their owners. They were not free unless someone paid for their freedom. The Bible says all have sinned. We need someone to pay that price of sin for us. We need someone to redeem us. Someone to buy us back. That's Jesus. He paid the price. He makes us right with God. And Paul says, It came by Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Propitiation, that big word, means the turning away of wrath by an offering. In salvation, propitiation means placating or satisfying the wrath of God. By the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So what Paul is saying to these guys. He's saying you can't save yourselves. But it's Jesus that makes you right before God. It's Jesus that took your your place. Your punishment. It's Jesus who buys you back. He redeems you. It's Jesus by his death on the cross. 
that has made satisfaction with God. The wrath of God which was to be poured out upon sin because he's a holy righteous God, Jesus dealt with. So when our faith is in Jesus, that wrath which God has for sinners no longer comes to us. It's on Jesus. It's on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So Paul says we're declared not guilty. We're no longer slaves to sin. The wrath of God has been removed all by Jesus. So the good news of this is God has dealt with the problem. He's removed the barrier. He's bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And now he says, whoever will may come. Whoever will may come. Every one of us here this morning can come to God through Jesus and be accepted. Not coming because we think we're good. Not coming because we think we do all the right things. But coming to him because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In verses 27, just to the end, just a few final thoughts. If I could find it, I've lost it. Yeah. Paul says this, Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul says, if salvation is all of God, who can boast? No one can boast. No one is deserving of heaven. No one is deserving of God's mercy. No one. And we know that in our hearts. We know we're not deserving. We know we're fallen. We know we think wrong things and do wrong things and say wrong things. See, the law, Paul is saying, wasn't the problem. We're the problem. The law is good, but it shows us as we truly are before a holy God. All people, Jew and Gentile, can only be saved through Jesus Christ. And that verse 28 is the key verse, I think. He says, Paul says to these guys, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It is all by faith in Christ alone. Is that who you're trusting? Is that who your faith's in? Is this something within you and me that thinks, well, I'm good, I'm all right. I'm doing good things. You know, I'm doing all the right church stuff. You know, and so therefore, you know, I'll be okay. Or we sometimes look at these other people who seem to do really, really good things. You know, um, outside of Christianity, and we think, well, maybe God should really accept them. Look what a blessing they are. Look how nice they are. Look all that money they raised. Look how many times they pray or what they do. And we start to entertain those ideas that actually there's another way into heaven, like you can climb over a fence somewhere or something or get in through a back door. No. When we say those things, we make God a liar. God says it's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The Bible tells us there's one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the only way to the Father and so the only way to heaven. We can't get there by our own righteousness or by our own effort. We can't get there through church attendance or good deeds. No entrance is only through Jesus. He has the name, Acts 4.12 tells us, the only name given under heaven by which a man can be saved. So God has dealt with the problem. He's removed the barrier. He's bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And now he says, whosoever will may come. And I challenge you this morning as I conclude. If you're not trusting Jesus alone, you need to do it. You need to do that. You need to do it this morning. We never know when our time's up. Life is short. We need to come to Jesus for salvation. There is no other way. There is nothing that you can do, nothing you are doing, that will please God enough to let you get into heaven. He says, Jesus. When God says, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer is, Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. And he says, come on in, good and faithful servant. We're going to have a a closing song. um, In Christ Alone. And while we're singing this song, if anything I've said has sort of moved you to think, you know, actually, I don't know if I'm really trusting in Jesus. You know, I've been thinking it's about me. I've been thinking, actually, that, you know, I'd be good enough, you know, or, or, you know, something I do might might please God in some way, then no. Today's the day to say, no, I'm just going to trust Jesus. My faith is in him alone. So if if you feel you want prayer this morning, you want to talk through some of those issues, Then as we sing this closing song, come to the front as people here will come and sit with you and pray with you. Not judge you, just pray with you. Pray for you to receive Jesus alone. Let's stand together to sing. Oh, I 
I don't know whether to uh, be pleased or disappointed that no one's come out. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I trust that you all are trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Because how foolish would it be to be in a burning building and somebody offers you a way of escape and you say, no thanks, I'll stay where I am. How foolish would it be to be on that, that ship that I mentioned that's sinking and somebody offers you a life jacket to save you and you say, no thanks, I'd rather drown. Friends, it's serious stuff. I want you to know that Jesus loves you, that he's the one that came and died for you, that you might be reconciled, made right with God. And your faith in him will give you an assurance of an eternal life with him. It's the blessed thing. You have an assurance. On Friday night, I just finished quickly. Friday night, I was speaking at the youth and giving my testimony. And I was asked the question, in all the time you've been a Christian, Tony, have you ever had a wobble? You know, wobble where you're not so sure. And I can honestly say, I never, ever have. From day one, for that first moment, I had an assurance that Jesus was my saviour. And I know I'm going to be with him for eternity. May that be your experience too. Well, let me just pray. Father, I just want to thank you for all these wonderful people here, Lord. You love each one. And I want to pray, Father, that you will become number one in their lives. That, Lord, if there are people here this morning who are not trusting you fully for their salvation, Lord, I pray that you would work in their life to bring them to a point to do that, to just trust in Jesus alone. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for the provision you've made that we might get into heaven and spend eternity with you. We love you, Lord. 
So, Father, bless us now as we go out and just share some fellowship over tea and coffee, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would remain with us and that all these families uh, present here today will be blessed by you. Father, meet each one's need, I pray, in Jesus' name.